comes up. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before you. Let me be singing when the evening comes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Oh Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending your presence. Thank you for, for walking the road of life with us. Thank you for, for gathering us all here today. And Father, as we enter into uh, the holiday season where we focus on things like being thankful and, and you coming for the first time as a man to, to rescue us, Father, I pray that, that, that we would take moments of time to just worship and praise you, not to cry out to you for anything in particular, but just to to rest and, and, and think about how wonderful and amazing you are. Um, thank you. Bless you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I hope I can uh, make it to that epic level of, of music that's behind that, uh, that bumper there. So there's this guy who went all across the United States of America, and he was polling people, asking them what they wanted most in life. Uh, I wonder what they, they said. Turn to the person next to you and, and tell them what you think they said, that what they want, the, the most important thing in life to them is, what they want out of life. What do you think they said? Go ahead, say it to the person next to you. What do you think? All right, so what did people say? And you'll have to shout it out because I'm hard of hearing. Money, right? World peace, fame, food. Did somebody say food? You're already thinking about Thanksgiving dinner, aren't you? Um, happiness is, is, is the, the overwhelming thing that I'm kind of hearing. And you know you're right. Happiness is the number one thing people say. Now, they say all of those other things, but they always see them as a means to the end being happiness. Our Declaration of Independence, in fact, says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. And I think we've turned the pursuit of happiness into an art form in our nation. I mean, that has become our focus. There are entire industries around that very thing, trying to provide people 
happiness. I overheard a lady at a garage sale one time. She said, my husband is going to be very angry. I stopped at your yard sale. And the seller said, oh, I'm sure he'll understand when you tell him about all the bargains that you found. She said, normally, yes, but he just broke his leg and he's waiting for me to take him to the hospital to have it set. (laughs) Now, what do you find at a garage sale? And this is just my opinion, but I think what you find at a garage sale is all of those things that promised happiness that either didn't deliver or stopped delivering. That's what you find. So we get rid of it. Now, Jesus said that he came to give us joy. He says this in John chapter 15, verse 11. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And when we allow the Spirit to fill us, we receive joy. Joy becomes a part of our life. Uh, In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, Paul says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Now, Paul faced some extreme difficulties in his life, and we're going to review them shortly. And, and so do we. We face difficult things in our lives. But this morning, we're going to see that these experiences that, that, that really seem to end in unwanted results, sometimes we think that, that this was an unwanted result, we're going to see that ultimately and amazingly, the result often is, as believers, the furthering or the progress of the gospel. Now, what a great purpose, the furthering of the gospel. What joy we can find in that. Now, we think that happiness is something that happens to us, right? We experience something, and then we just, we just get happy because of it. So it, it, it experience, um, we think that it's something that happens to us. But like love, happiness is a choice. It's a choice that we must make every day. Now, there's a story about two prisoners in a prison cell. The only light is through a window that is three feet above their their eye level. And there's one prisoner who focuses daily on the bars. Whenever he looks at that window, all he sees is the bars on that window. And they are an ugly reminder of his imprisonment. And as he focuses on those bars, he gets gets discouraged um, in, in his situation and his circumstances. The other prisoner... Instead of focusing on the bars, at night looks beyond the bars and he sees the stars. He he sees right past the bars, out into the vastness of the sky, and as he focuses on the stars, he is filled with hope and thoughts about the future when he will be free one day. Two different guys, same situation, two completely different viewpoints, and it was their choice. It was a decision. One prisoner focusing on the bars and one focusing on the stars. So what's their secret? What's, what was Paul's secret? I think it was his mindset. It, it, it's his mindset. It's, it's him rethinking things. It's, it's him putting his difficulties and his problems in a different perspective. At the end of Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, Paul says this, finally brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, what does he say? Think about those things. Don't think about all the garbage and all the trash and all the difficulties and all the struggles. Think about those things, Paul says. Now, Paul spent two years in a prison in Caesarea on trumped-up charges. We know that he was put in there uh, for not doing anything wrong. 
He gets shipped to Rome. On the way to Rome is shipwrecked, ends up on an island, gets bit by a poisonous snake, and when they finally get him to Rome, he's all but forgotten and spends another two years in jail and still doesn't stand trial. And during that time, he's chained to a guard 24-7. Okay, just think about if that was you. And think about what you would be thinking. I mean, I could hear Paul say something like, man, if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all, right? I can't even get shipped to prison without something happening. I mean, if we were to look up victim in the dictionary, there ought to be a picture of the Apostle Paul. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like, I don't want to get out of bed this morning because I just know as soon as I step foot out of this house, something bad's going to happen? Have you ever uttered the words, you've got to be kidding me? I think I did yesterday. At the end of the Cowboys game, actually. (laughs) Right? I mean, what else is going to happen? And sometimes that's a pretty serious statement that we make, not to make light of it. But, But Paul didn't do this. Instead, what Paul does is he pens one of the most encouraging books in the Bible, in the book of Philippians. This is where he's at. And, and what we're going through over the next seven weeks, weeks is, is what he wrote to the, to the church in Philippi. And, and let's read our passage for the day. If you haven't turned there yet, turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 12 through 30. 12 through 30. Philippians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab one in front of a seat or on the floor. Poke a neighbor and say, hey, I didn't bring a Bible. Can you grab me one? Turn to the book of Philippians. Beginning in verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose, Paul says? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is, which is better by far. But, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, 
Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. What, what a personal and warm, encouraging letter. And can you imagine being in the room and hearing that read for the first time? Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're hearing this read for the first time. Doesn't that sound like a warm and encouraging letter? And, and Paul's talking about circumstances. He said, and he's saying, in circumstances, I'm able to rejoice. He says that in verse 18. So how do we remain joyful in the midst of crummy circumstances? Because we're all, we've all been there or we're there even today. And in our passage this morning, we're going to look at four, four actions to, to experiencing joy in life. Four actions. Now, last week in verses 1 through 11, if you weren't here with us, Paul started off by talking about people. Um, if relationships that we have are bad, if relationships are strained, then there's not going to be a lot of joy in our life. And, and if we have problems with people, if we're holding on to things against people, it kills the joy that can be in our life. And in this passage today, Paul is talking about circumstances, which are the second way that joy can be stolen from us. We're going to learn how to be joyful, remain positive no matter what. Even if we were in prison in Rome, this could be us. The first thing is this. The first action is this. We need to look at every problem from God's point of view, not our own. Our attitude about problems is the key, essentially. Everyone has problems, right? How many of you have a problem or you know where you can find one, right? <laughs> Problems are part of life, and if you're looking for a life of no problems, guess what? You're in the wrong species, because there's just going to be problems. Victor and Mildred Goetzel did a study of 413 very successful and exceptionally gifted people, okay? They wrote their findings in their book, Cradles of Eminence. They wanted to see if there was a common thread that was woven throughout all of these people's lives. Is there something that helped make them um, seem so exceptionally gifted and successful? And they found very surprisingly in almost all of their lives, 392 out of the 413 had overcome some major obstacle in their life. 392 out of 413. And that obstacle actually contributed to making them who they were today. You see, our problems are not so important as how we look at them, I think. Our response to the problem is more than the problem. Um, our, our attitude, it's, it really is the difference. And, and I think it really is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond to it. Now, this is actually one of the sessions that I teach when I do premarriage counseling, and if you've ever gone through that with me, you know. There's a session called, um, and I've done it so many times I can't remember. It's, it's titled, well, it was, I thought it was more complex than that. It's titled The Habit of Happiness. 
the habit of happiness. Choosing. Choosing to face something that's completely out of your control and attacking it from a different perspective than the woe is me, it's going to ruin my life kind of attitude. But one that's positive. In, in fact, um, uh, if you've ever been in a small airplane, uh, I, I've been in a small airplane. I've flown a small airplane. I love to fly. And one of these days, I'm going to be current again. Uh, but until then, uh, until my wife l- wins the lottery or something like that. Um, no, she doesn't play the lottery. Just kidding. At least that I know of. <laughs> just being honest. Um, the couple that, that the videos of the pre-marriage counseling, they were flying in a small airplane, and, and they're up, and they're over, uh, they're over Washington, and they see the mountains and all of that. And, and as they're getting ready to come in for a landing, he asks the pilot, he said, so what's the, what's the key to a, a smooth landing? landing? What's the key to a, sex, a successful landing? And, and the, pilot, the pilot says this, the key to a good landing is having the right attitude despite atmospheric conditions. And, and Les, the, the guy, he's, he, he tells his wife, he, he actually meant to say altitude. And the pilot's like, no, 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 I, I, really, I really meant attitude. Because um, when, when you learn to fly a plane, you find out that, that the plane's location in the air is called its attitude. And, you know, whether it's banking left or right or you're throwing rudder in and all of that, that's called the plane's attitude. And in Wyoming especially, you have to be ready to... Make adjustments due to unforeseen atmosphere. You can take off and it can be calm as can be. And when you come to land, it's a right quartering crosswind at 30 miles an hour. If you don't know how to adjust, you're going to crash. You, you've seen those videos, right? Where the, and the title is ridiculous, but pilots save planes from scary crashes, right? And you see the plane coming in like this, and then at the last second he does this. It's on purpose, that's how they have to land the plane, right? It's the attitude. And, and they change that, and we can live our lives that way. The key to living a happy life is having the right attitude despite atmospheric conditions. Because we know that you can do no more than control the weather than you can sometimes what happens to you in life. Look at verse, four, look at verse 12. Paul says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul is looking, I mean, man, you talk about a silver lining on jail, right? Prison? What a positive statement. And after all he's been through, in fact, he considered all that's happened to him as a process that God has brought him through to bring him to the place where he's at. You know, I bet Paul dreamed one time. I think he always had the vision and mission to be in Rome preaching the gospel. I mean, Rome was the center, right, of the universe at that time for all of those people. That's where the movers and shakers were. That's where the government was. That's where the power was. And I wonder if he saw himself preaching from the middle of the Colosseum to all of the people that came. But no, where is he? He's in prison. But Paul sees that his circumstances really have cleared the way for the advancement of the gospel. You see, Paul can see the best even in the worst. He doesn't say, why, why did this happen to me? He chooses the positive and he says, how, how can God use this to benefit me? How can God use this in my life? How is he using this in my life? 
Look at verse, verse 13. As a result, Paul says, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So he sees this bullet point as an opportunity to share Christ with others. He's taking advantage of this deal. So I did a little bit of research, and, and the guards that were put in charge of making sure Paul didn't get away were called the Praetorian Guard. One of the, the most elite guards of the Roman civilization, the Praetorian Guards. They were, they were guards of the emperor. They would serve 12 years and then become part of the government after they served their years as a guard. And, prob- and, and, and again, as I said, Paul maybe thought he was going to preach in the Colosseum, but here now he has what? A captive audience. They were chained to him 24 hours a day for two years. Could you even imagine living that way and having a positive outlook on life? Knowing that you're there for no good reason? (laughs) They probably were chained to him in four-hour shifts, and if you do the math, he had over 2,000 opportunities to share Christ during his waking hours. Now, these guards had an inside route to who? The emperor. Paul didn't see the guards as a negative thing, as his bond keepers. No, he saw them as a captive audience, and he shared his faith with them. And in chapter 4, verse 21, it says this, The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Isn't that great news? Paul's talking about those who are in Caesar's household as if they are a part of the church, and they are. Why? Because Paul preached from the Colosseum? No, because he was chained to guards for two years. In verse 14, we find the second way that he viewed his circumstances. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Believers were encouraged by this. Romans 8.28, Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Positive, positive, positive. Isn't it encouraging, and doesn't it give you a bit of boldness when you see someone live out their faith in a way that's pretty scary, kind of risky, but, but after observing that they're still alive afterwards, you think, yeah, yeah, I might be able to do that. You know, all, a lot of these people, many of them in the early church, may in fact end up in prison. And to see the fact that Paul lived this way for four years, chained, and writes the letter of Philippians, I think maybe I could do that. And we can be this kind of an example to those around us at work, at school, in our home. Dad loses his job. How do you respond to that? You sit down as a family and you pray. And you said, Lord, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to... As a family, you sit down with your children and you say, Lord, we, we trust that you can get us through this. And then when he does, your kids see that he does. The believers are encouraged. Our children can be encouraged. Those around us can be encouraged. Every struggle, every such celebration, God leverages those things for good. Every one of them. To encourage, to strengthen, to grow. 
as, as Brenda so very well said, don't let Satan talk you into minimizing your impact on the people around you. Don't let him do it. The words that you say, no matter when it is, are important. And God can use those in amazing ways. And we find out through certain arenas, Satan can use those things for destruction as well, depending on the words that we choose to say. So look in your notes there. It says, rethink number one. Here's the thing. Maybe this is you and you need to rethink this. This is what you need to rethink. Uh, You need to think this. God will use every one of my problems for good. God will use every one of my problems for good. Now the second action for experiencing joy is, is this. Never let others control your attitude. Never let others control your attitude. Man, that is so easy to do, isn't it? I mean... Wow. Look at Philippians uh, verses 15 through 17. In those verses, Paul describes some people in his life. In fact, they're critics trying to slander him. Troublemakers are creating all kinds of controversy and trouble. And he can't even really defend himself because they're out there and he's in here chained to guards. Not only am I in prison, Paul says, if that isn't bad enough, right? They're kicking me when I'm down. These guys are attacking the ministry. They're making stuff up. They're stirring up trouble when I'm in prison. I mean, if you really want to steal the joy from someone quicker than anything else, criticize them. If, if, I mean, and Facebook is stupid for this. Amen, Garrett. Yes, it is. Because we listen to that stuff. It's, it's, it's like somebody says something. Before, you know, once in a while there'd be a letter to the editor in the newspaper or there might be an article that's critical about somebody in the community. But now, it's easy access. Just throw it out there and see what happens. I want them to feel like I do, so let's just throw it out there. And you know what? They end up feeling like you do because it steals the joy right out of them. I mean, would you agree that few things can rob your happiness faster than being criticized? I mean, we, we want approval. We, we want approval in life. And, and what's so painful about critics is not just that they have high standards, but you get the feeling that they really ultimately want you to fail. Right? Some of the same things that those who don't like the, the new president-elect, okay, were happy eight years ago. And some of those who are happy today were saying some of the same things eight years ago that our then-president-elect, kind of hoping that he would fail just to prove that it was wrong that our country made that choice. No, we need to pray for our leaders, who, whoever they are. And we need to recognize that that just doesn't happen on a national level. That happens in our personal relationships, too. And, and here's the thing. I mean, when somebody expects you to be perfect, look, listen to this. Jesus was perfect. Did he have critics? Absolutely, yes. I mean, they, they called him, a, I mean, they called him all sorts of things. They accused him of all, they criticized him on all sorts of areas. And he was perfect. So what in the world would make us wonder why people are critical of us, right? I mean, it's going to happen. Every day, 
Possibly somebody's going to be critical about something that you do or you say or you think. But here's the thing. We can choose whether we listen to that or not. You know, a wise man once told me, when you receive criticism, you do two things. You sort through it and see if there's any truth in it. Maybe even ask somebody else, is there truth in this criticism? And you let the rest go. Can't do anything about it. In verse 17, Paul talks about people on the outside who are just trying to mess him up. They're troublemakers, he calls them. Pastor John Smith says that the favorite tool of a troublemaker is gossip. It's gossip. It's the number one sign of a troublemaker. The book of Proverbs says that a a person who gossips is as bad as a saboteur. They're like a verbal terrorist. Right? But look at Paul's attitude when it comes to this. Because I'm guessing that every one of us have been gossiped about. Verse 18, look what Paul says. But what does it matter? (laughs) What do you mean, what does it matter? To me, sometimes it matters a great deal. But I'm learning from Paul. Paul says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Now, Paul wasn't going to let anybody steal his joy, was he? He is Christ-centered as Christ-centered can be. Not circumstances, not critics, not troublemakers. He said their motives might be wrong, but here's what's important, Paul says. It's that the message is getting out. This is rethink number two. I think it's what Paul did. We need to focus on what really counts. Focus on what really counts. You get criticized for making a a decision that you prayed for and that you believe that God is wanting you to do this, whatever it is, if you're an administrator or a teacher or a boss or an employee, and you make this decision and you get criticized for it, hold tight and realize that what you're doing... you. Our government starts making decisions backing up our country from where we've come in the last eight years. You bet there's going to be criticism. Should they back off from that? No. Because it's the right thing to do. We need to focus on, re- on what really counts. Don't allow others to fill our minds with negative judgmental thoughts that steal our joy. That rob us of a positive mindset. You know, I mean, I have a niece who's, who's still in the process of, of, of battling and, and gaining ground on stage four lung cancer. And she, that I have seen, from what she has said, it's been nothing other than faith. Hard, yes. Difficult, yes. Cry, tears, fear, yes. But always trust. Always trust. And her, you know, she lives her middle name. Her middle name is Joy. Of all people to get stage four lung cancer, it's somebody with the middle name Joy. Why is that? Maybe God had a purpose in that. I don't know. What I do know is that she's a living example of trusting God and focusing on what really counts, not what's happening in the circumstances or what people are saying. Let's look at the third action. It's this. Know your source of strength. Know your source of strength. You know, we all need strength to make it, to keep going. I mean, life wears us out. 
We get tired. We burn a candle at both ends. It's one crisis after another, and it can drain us. We lose our energy. We lose our power. And sometimes we get to the point where we just feel like throwing the towel in. I wish I'd have researched where that phrase comes from. I think I have an idea, but you know, you throw the towel in. Some of you might be thinking, I, I've done the best I could, but it's never good enough, and I'm tired, and I'm sick, and I'm quitting. I'm giving up. You should never give up. What you need, if you're in that place, is a fresh source of strength. And that strength comes from God, from the Holy Spirit. When we're going through a problem, we have two options. We can worship or we can worry. Worship or worry. We can pray or we can panic. Which will it be? Those are the two options we've got. Paul says at the end of Philippians 1.18, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. I want you to circle two words. I will. What is that? It's an act of the will. It's a decision Paul is making. It's not just an emotion that comes to him. I will, Paul says. I'm choosing this. It's our choice to worship or worry, to panic or pray. I mean, I don't care how bad things are in your life or in mine. That's a choice that we can make. How we respond. Look at verse 19. For I know, Paul says, that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, I have two things that give me strength and keep me going. The prayers of the people and the help of God's Spirit. You know, last week I had you, challenged you to be a, a positive impact on the, some lives of people that maybe you haven't really considered being a positive impact before. In fact, I think on the Connect card, there's a couple things that, that uh, just reminders. Um, I will continue to pray for so-and-so this week. We challenged you, as Paul did in our relationships, to, to pray for somebody in a positive way that maybe you struggle with. God, also, God gave me someone to be patient with, and I'm trying. You could check that one, too. Because that's a decision we can make. Am I going to try or am I not going to try? Am I going to punch them in the mouth or am I going to bite my lip and pray in a positive way for this person? Man, Garrett, you are right on today. I'm so glad you didn't say punch him in the mouth. <laughs> Scott, me too. <laughs> and then I loved someone with my heart this week instead of my head. That can be a big challenge. That can be a big challenge, but one that we need to consider. Look at verse 20. Paul says, I eagerly expect, after he makes this decision and this choice, and he knows it's the prayers of the people and God's Spirit that's giving him the strength to do this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. You see, Paul, circle the word hope there. We can't live without hope. And, and Paul needs the prayers of people. Paul, Paul, Paul's not this perfect, all-powerful, you know, never has doubt guy. He, he wants them to pray for him that he can stand up, that he can have the strength, that he can be the example that God wants him to be. 
Paul was hopeful regardless of the uncertainties in face he faced. For all Paul knew, death might be right around the corner. It's true for us as well. I mean, we can handle tremendous stress and pressure as long as we have hope. And where do we get hope? Where do you get your hope? Is it from your bank account? Is it from your position at work? And that's found in Philippians 4.13, Garrett. Paul says, I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Now, a, a point of context, okay? Read that verse again. I can do all this through Christ who's, who gives me strength. Some translations say things. And we take that out of its context and we put it up here and we say, well, I can do anything. Right? And I know that we've talked about this before. If we could do anything, why did... Um, why did disciples of Jesus die and were killed? There were things they couldn't do. They couldn't hang upside down with things poking in their body for long periods of time. See, what, this is in the context of what Paul is talking about. And, and Paul is dealing with problems here and, and, and tough circumstances. And those things, however they come out, we can do those things through Christ who strengthens us. These things that God permits in our life. To Paul, God is in full control of everything in his life. The shipwreck, God allowed it. The snake bite, God allowed it. The jail, God allowed it. God could have stopped it. God could have freed him at any time, but he didn't. If he was under arrest in prison, God was still in charge. The point is this. God is not some distant God. He's walking life right along with you and with me. He's still in charge. And he's a constant reality, a very present help whenever needs occur. He is the author of our strength. So rethink number three is this. With God's power, nothing can devastate me. Nothing can devastate me. The fourth action Paul takes in this passage is this, stay focused on my purpose, not my problem. See, Paul was focused on preaching Christ, not the fact that he was in jail. And our lives are a very testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's old, he's tired, he's been in prison for four years, they've taken every single thing from him. His friends, his freedom, his privacy. He was chained to a guard 24-7. Think about that. In the middle of the night, when you just can't hold it anymore. All right, let's go. Look at verse 21. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's his purpose. That's his purpose. Now, he's not suicidal. He's convinced that he has to give up his life in order to carry out God's purpose for his life. And if he's going to wind up being martyred or executed for the sake of Christ, Paul says, that's really not a problem anyway. That's a good thing. I like graduate to a better place. If I get killed in the achievement of my purpose, I'll be transferred into the next life where I'll enjoy the presence of God, Paul's thinking to himself. I mean, when, when you have a purpose in life like Paul's, you put yourself in a win-win situation every time. 
We get to live for the highest earthly purpose imaginable now if we live for Christ. If we relate to him closely, we serve him faithfully, and when we die, we get promoted. Where's the lose in that? I am torn between the two, Paul says. I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Here's the amazing thing. Paul doesn't just have a purpose for living. He has a purpose for dying. We talk about our purpose in life all the time. But do you ever think about your purpose in death? Or dying? A good friend of mine up in South Dakota lost their pastor a couple weeks ago to cancer. And, and, and I've heard this from other pastors before as well. As they continue to pastor their church, as they go through the treatment and the, the struggle and everything that cancer is, and, and they, they, they make the switch from, I think, I, I think my purpose is no longer to show you how to live. I think my purpose is now to show you how to die. And as they live, I mean, uh, Terry talks about his pastor with, I mean, there was articles in the newspaper. People in the whole community saw how this pastor was fighting this cancer and living his life. And in the end, it's a huge testimony. Because even in the midst of that, there was joy in his life. You see, we can live that way. There's nothing more exceptional about that pastor in, in Rapid City than there is about you or me. Except in how he thinks about life and who he puts his trust in and where his power comes from. So here's the rethink number four. Because our, if our purpose in life is to serve God, how do we serve God? How do we do that? We serve God by serving other people. We serve God by serving other people. You see, when you bring an offering to purchase Bibles for the Gideons, you're serving God by serving other people. I forget the numbers. Do you remember the numbers, Gary, of the offering last week? I was going to bring this sheet of paper up here and I totally forgot. It was like 400 Bibles or something that the offering last week or two weeks ago purchased for the Gideons to be distributed. That's important. That's a big deal because of your generosity. Uh, there will be people in, uh, on the battlefield who get a military Bible stick because you gave. Now, of course, that's easy. It's easy to write a check. It's important, but it's, it's easy to do that. Um, you, you serve God when you buy a gift for a child at Christmas whose family has fallen on hard times, or when you help kids read that don't know how to read, or you care for the sick, or you listen to someone who's struggling. When you, when you take and you give up 50 hours in a, in a matter of months to go through Stephen's ministry training, and then God says, I want you to walk along with so-and-so, that's serving God. That's as you serve people. When you teach in a kids' program or you minister with students, in fact, um, Kids Zone is, is, has some openings in the toddler room. The sheet is out there on the information counter if you might be willing to serve downstairs. Project one, when you participate in that, if you've ever participated in that, you've served God as you serve other people. What a great purpose. 
In all these things, we serve God by serving others. So Paul says, when I'm alive, my purpose is simply to serve God by serving people. (laughs) When I die, my purpose is to be with Christ. Either way, it's a win. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Here's the reason why most people are miserable. They think that happiness comes from self-gratification. The pursuit of the things that we think will give us happiness. They think that happiness comes from self-gratification. If I just get more money, if I just get more things, if I just get that big truck with that big Cummins diesel engine in it, The way to happiness instead is through self-sacrifice, not self-gratification. Paul says the reason that I have joy is because as long as I'm alive, I'm giving my life to God. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ and I'm going to help others in the midst of that. Joy comes from service. Happiness does not come from self-serving. It comes from self-sacrifice. You know, we weren't created to make a bunch of money and die. No, God is a far, has a far greater purpose for your life and for mine. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul says, this is the only answer that leads to joy. Look in your notes there at the very bottom. How would you complete the sentence, for me to live is... Maybe there's something that's been a higher priority in your life and you, would, you, you can't put Christ in there today. It would be something else. Maybe it's your business or your farm or even your children. You see, there's only one answer to that blank that is going to, that is going to last 100 years from now or even 50, much less than 10,000 years from now. you're going to spend more of your life on that side of death than you are on this side. And there's only one answer for me to live is Christ. I hope that's what you put in that blank or you wrestle with that and you ask God to help you so that that can be your answer. Paul said the only thing worth living for, it's a relationship with the one who made you and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, thank you for how how good you are to us. And, and thank you that, that you give us the strength to make good decisions and, and, and you give us the strength to choose happiness and joy over depression and discouragement. That, that you give us the strength to not worry but worship. To not panic but pray. Father, I pray that that the points today would become a part of our lives this week, that they would become habits or they would be just the way that we rethink. Father, thank you for the people in this room and those who are listening or watching online. And Father, I pray that that, that today would just be such an encouragement. We'd just be so thankful for, for you and for Paul and the letter that you've given us to learn about you and him. Father, help us to face 
with the right attitude, those atmospheric conditions that come at us during the course of a day and a week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The ushers are going to come forward and...